Hebrews chapter 9. The Bible is broken into two halves. Uh, we call it the Old Testament and the New Testament, and a lot of people don't give any thought to it other than that's just the name that we have. But the reason that they are called the Old Testament and the New Testament is because there was a covenant that was made prior to Calvary and the covenant that was made at Calvary. And uh, the Bible refers to it as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the book of Hebrews, it uses the word testament. And so we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that is our division of Scripture uh, before Calvary and then after Calvary or during the time of Calvary, the transitional time, and then, of course, the time of Calvary. We get to Hebrews chapter number 9. If you ever, uh, Hebrews is, is, uh, can be, if you're not careful, can be a difficult book to read. It's not difficult to understand if you read it carefully and slowly, but uh, it has some thoughts that are very deep thoughts. And, uh, but I'll tell you, it's something that will uh, enrich your heart as you read the book of Hebrews. Um, it certainly is a joy as we get into it to realize that uh, this thing of, of covenant or testament, if you will, uh, is something that man, because of our sinful condition and our fallen state, cannot keep. The idea of covenant with God was that it got established it years ago in the Old Testament. It was uh, something that was to be, a, we call it a promise today, but it was more than that. It was something that was not to be broken. Uh, literally, when you entered into a covenant with somebody, you literally became uh, one with them. Everything that they had was yours. Their name was yours. Their reputation was yours. They would come to your defense as if it was their own life. Their possessions belonged to you. Uh, I mean, just literally everything was was uh, brought together. In fact, the Bible talks about it when the husband and wife come together, that it is a marriage covenant, and that uh, the two would come together, and the two would be one flesh, and the idea of two becoming one. And uh, the Old Testament covenant was something that God instituted uh, to illustrate and to be able to show forth uh, what he has done for us. And we're going to take a minute to look at that tonight. If you will, look with me in chapter number 9. We're going to read uh, down through verse about, probably about verse 15 or so. And um, we'll begin in verse number 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with the gold, there wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while, while at the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him, 
that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal, cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself oft, often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often suffer since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Father, we pray that you bless the message tonight and speak to our hearts as we look at some things from Scripture that will encourage us and show us all that you have done. I pray that you would help it to strengthen our faith. And Lord, that we will love you as we leave this place more than we've ever loved you before. And Father, that we will trust and believe and Hold to the fact that through our faith, you allow us to be partakers of this wonderful covenant. We pray that you'll bless all that is said and done as we take time to observe your supper tonight in the covenant meal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God established the covenant, and the process of covenant in the Old Testament was very unique. I've shared with it our church several times. 
But I think when we have opportunity to come to the Lord's table, it's interesting for us to relive these things and to know these things. And as Peter said, by way of remembrance, to stir up our souls. And I believe that it's wonderful to look at the picture that God gives of Old Testament covenant and understanding that many of the things that God established in the Old Testament are pictures of New Testament principles, and in this case, are principles of things that actually are in heaven. For instance, we read here that there was a tabernacle that was made that is a shadow. It's a pattern of the things that are actually in heaven. There's a mercy seat in heaven. Aren't you glad of that tonight? And while the tabernacle on this earth was made with hands, the tabernacle in the heavens were not made by hands. They were made by God. And uh, the high priest that would go into this tabernacle once a year for the atonement of sins for the people would go in once a year with the blood of calves and goats. And he would have to first wash himself and cleanse himself. And then he would go in and uh, make sacrifice and atonement through the blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat for the sins of others. And I'm thankful tonight that we don't have to do that year after year after year. Because when Christ died at Calvary, the Bible says once for all, he was not a priest who needed to be cleansed himself. He lived a perfect life. And then he came to this earth and died on a cross and took his own blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat in heaven. I don't know exactly when that took place. But I do know that if we follow the Old Testament picture, from the time that the Old Testament high priest cleansed himself until the time that he was able to back into the Holy of Holies and with his back to the Ark of the Covenant, he would take the blood and reach behind him and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And I do know that during that time period, from the time he cleansed himself until the time that the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the high priest could not be touched. For him to be touched would corrupt him, and he would have to go back through the ordeal of cleansing himself once again. The purification would not be there. As we look at the crucifixion story, and we find that Christ resurrected from the dead on the third day, the morning of the third day, that when Mary saw him in the garden and she, he called her name and she finally realized who he was, he tells her specifically, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And yet, just a, a short while later, he appears to his disciples in the upper room. And he tells them to touch him and to handle him, to put their hands in the prints of his hands and to put uh, their hands in the wound of his side. Somewhere between the time of meeting Mary in the garden and meeting his disciples, Christ ascended to the mercy seat in heaven and took his own precious blood. Blood that did not have to be offered year after year. Aren't you thankful for that? And once and for all sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat that you and I could have eternal life. And God established this New Testament that was not a testament of law. The law became our schoolmaster to show us our need of a Savior. But he establishes a testament of grace. An idea that we get salvation not because we've done certain things or because we've earned it. And not because of any merit of our own. But because of the unmerited favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find here in chapter number 9 the Bible says in verse number 
uh, 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What an amazing thought. There's not one thing that you and I can do. We cannot keep the law. In fact, if you remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Christ asking what he had to do to be saved, and Christ told him, he said, go and keep the commandments. He said, this have I done from a youth. And Christ goes on to say, then sell all that thou have and hast and give to the poor. What he was telling the young man is even the keeping of the commandments is not good enough. If there was a person who ever could keep every aspect of the law, the fact is the matter is it still would not be enough to save us. The law was never intended to save. It was intended to teach us of our need of a Savior. So we find that this wonderful testament is made, this new covenant with God. But there's a problem with that in that a covenant has to have two participants. It's an agreement that is made between two people to reconcile and bring them together to be one. And the covenant that God is making here is a covenant that He wants to make with man. And yet there's a problem in the fact that the covenant is something that is not to be broken, even to the point of death. Years ago when Dr. Livingston had lost contact with the outside world and for a long length of time had no one had heard from him. Nobody knew what had happened to him. He had actually made his way into the interior of Africa, which no white man had ever done before. They sent a man by the name of Dr. Henry to go in after him and to find out if, uh, if he was still alive or what had become of him. Dr. Henry, as he got to the shores of Africa and became acquainted with some of the tribal uh, units on the shoreline, learned of the cannibalistic traits and the, the barbaric tribes that were inland. And he was taught something as he began his journey into the heart of Africa to find Dr. Stanley, uh, or, or Dr. Stanley, Dr. Henry Stanley, uh, Dr. Livingston, uh, was that if in order for them to survive going through the, uh, the tribes that were cannibalistic and barbaric, that those folks understood what a covenant was. Isn't that interesting? That even in the most barbaric and, and what we would look at as heathen tribes of Africa, that there was still some semblance of something left over that God had established early on in the history of man. And Dr. Stanley, Dr. Henry Stanley goes in to the first tribe and the very first thing he does is he goes to the chief and he asks to cut the covenant with the chief. They went through the ritual of what they called cutting the covenant and the, the same practices were being used that had been used in Old Testament days. They would take an animal and they would sacrifice it and they would lay it in two halves and allow the, pool for, uh, the blood from the animal to pool in the middle. And the two parties that were going to make covenant would stand either side of the sacrifice and they would begin to walk what was called the infinity walk. They would walk one around the one side and one around the other side and they would meet in the middle of the sacrifice standing in the pool of blood. And while standing in the pool of blood, they would do several things there. They would express the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And in that idea, in that mind time period, they would express what they were agreeing on and then what would be 
the, the penalty for breaking this covenant. And in essence, what they were saying was, let what happened to this sacrifice happen to me if I break covenant with you. They would do several things at this point. They would exchange names. By the way, our marriage, our marriage ceremonies today still practice a lot of these things from the Old Testament covenant, and most people don't even realize it, that we exchange names. They would also make commitments one to another in several areas. Not only would they exchange names, but they would each take off their cloaks and exchange it with each other. And in essence, what they were doing and saying by that was, Everything that I have and everything that I own is now yours. It belongs to you. And everything that you have now belongs to me. A man who was in covenant with another man, if they were to go to a restaurant together, uh, would uh, have every right to order anything he wanted off of the meal and then to take money from his friend and pay the bill with it because his money was my money. And the same thing held true the other way. They would exchange possessions, and everything that that person had became the property of the other person. They would then exchange weapons belts, and when exchanging weapons belts, they were saying, I will defend you and be your defense to the point of my own death. I will guard you as if it's my own life. And if you made a treaty and a, 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 uh, a covenant with a chief of a tribe, then the covenant trickled down through the, through the whole tribe. And so to create covenant with the chief meant that the entire tribe would commit to the chief and allow these things to be done. They would also take an opportunity at this point to reach down and grab some of the ash from the offering that they had burnt. They would slice the palm or the wrist. And they would rub some of the ash in it and they would join hands, allowing their blood to mingle, saying, Now we are one, one flesh, one body. And the ash that was rubbed in it would leave an indelible mark in our marriage ceremonies. We have them join right hands. We don't have them cut their hands anymore. But years ago, they even used to cut the hands of the bride and the groom or the thumbs. In fact, when people came to the New World and the Indians that were over here would uh, become blood brothers, they would make a treaty. You say, where did that come from? The Native American Indians understood covenant. When they entered into a treaty, it was not to be broken to the point of death. Well, nowadays, we don't put a tattoo, we don't rub the ash in the wound of the cut, but in a marriage ceremony, we exchange rings and we wear it as a token. We say, this is a permanent mark that I am now a covenant man or a covenant woman. After this was done, they would finish the walk as they continued on around and ended up on opposite sides. If you looked at the infinity walk from start to finish, it would make the sign of infinity from above, meaning that this covenant was not to be broken throughout all of time. It was something that was to be only broken to the point of death. And then they would have a covenant meal afterwards. And in the covenant meal, they would feed one another and they would give to drink to one another. And the covenant meal was something that was used as a way of remembering the covenant. And it was something that was to be observed from time to time. It's not a regularly scheduled thing, but from time to time a meal would be served that was of the same uh, things of the covenant. And uh, the two folks would come together and they would still serve and go through the process of the covenant meal for no other reason than to remember and to observe the covenant. 
when Dr. Henry Stanley got to the interior of the heart of Africa and found Dr. Livingston, it was said that he had cut the covenant with over 50 tribes. And when he would come to a new tribe, all he had to do to keep from being killed was to roll his sleeve up and to hold his arm in the air and he could walk into that tribe unharmed. Because the chief of that tribe knew that if he touched or harmed Dr. Stanley in any way, that every person from all of those tribes that he had cut the covenant with would come after their tribe and would slaughter them all until they were all dead. That's how serious covenant was. Jesus Christ understood that man could never keep covenant with God. It's a sad thought, but the truth. You and I are sinful flesh. We're, we're weak. The spirit may be willing, Paul said, but the flesh is weak. And we could never keep covenant with God. And as much as God wanted this covenant to be the thing that redeemed us and brought us together with Him for eternity, He understood and knew that because we could never keep covenant with Him, that we would be uh, and succumb to the curse of that covenant. And so He had to come up with a solution. And that is that He allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to be the surety or the testator of that new covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ entered the covenant on our behalf. And He gives it to us as a free gift. Isn't that amazing? And when I sin, God the Father does not see Greg Boer. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been brought over my life and placed on top of it. And when God looks at me, He sees the righteousness of His own Son. Isn't that amazing? And from time to time, we are to observe and to remember. Christ walked that road to Calvary. We could call it the infinity walk, couldn't we? As he got to the point of Calvary, not only was he part of the party being involved in the covenant, but for the first time ever, he was also the sacrifice. And he laid down his own life, and he stood suspended between heaven and earth. And there the sacrifice became the testator became the surety of the new covenant. We get to exchange names. I get to call myself a Christian. Amen. The Bible says I've got a new name written down in heaven. I don't know what it is yet, but God does. We've got a new name written down in heaven. We've exchanged names. God has given us all things that pertain unto Him. In essence, He says, all that I have is yours. And I'm going to tell you something right now. We get the far better end of the deal, don't we? Because when we come to Him and say, God, you also have all that I have, it's not much. But by the way, He ought to have all 
of what we have. It's His. The blessed thing is that He gives us all of who He is. He's given us His weapon belt, hasn't He? He gave us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He said, I'll be your fortress and your strong tower. He said, the gates of hell shall not even prevail against you. He will with every temptation make a way of escape. And He comes and He is our defense, isn't He? He gives us the whole armor of God. It belongs to Him, but He gives it to us. He comes and fights on our behalf, and His strength is our strength. I'm thankful tonight that it is not dependent upon me to keep covenant with God. Unless we sit here and say, well, because I'm not dependent to keep covenant with God, I can go out here and live any way I want to. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We owe a great debt, don't we? He ought to have everything we have. Our life, our will, our minds, our hearts. He ought to have it all. Jesus, understanding what was getting ready to happen, takes his disciples and he has a last meal with them, a final meal. I want you to notice over in chapter number 10 and then we're going to go look at this meal in just a moment. Chapter number 10 of the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, let's again begin in verse number 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see that? Understand this tonight. There are some people out there and I've had some come and sit across the desk from me and talk to me about this. That the Old Testament sacrifices ought to still be taking place. But understand this, that the blood of the sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament could never take away sin. But this man, verse number 12, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Amen. What a, what a verse of Scripture. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, he hath said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, look what he says, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Notice this. We are to hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering 
not because of us, but notice what it says, for he is faithful that promised. Why do we get to hold fast the profession of our faith? Is it because we live right? Is it because we do right? Is it because we have a right kind of heart? No. Because He is faithful. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and unto good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. I want to just say this. This verse has been preached so often without giving the backstory, Without laying out the evidences before drawing this conclusion. God has given all to us. He has held back nothing. We are to give all to Him and hold back nothing. And the writer of Hebrews draws this conclusion. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Brother, Pastor, don't, don't, don't preach again on, on a message of, of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. It's, it's another one of those messages about church attendance. Whoa, whoa, it, it, folks, can, can we get past the church attendance thing? It, it ought not even be a question. Because of what God has done here. There ought not be a a Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or any other type of meeting that the church folks come together and and God's people get together. There ought not even be a discussion, hey, do you think we ought to go? I I woke up in my house for 20-some years until I got out of college. And not one time did I ever hear my mom ask my dad, Honey, do you think we ought to go to church today? Not once. There wasn't a Wednesday night where we were tired and busy that we ever sat and discussed, Well, you think we ought to go to church tonight? Never happened. It might have helped that my dad was the pastor and he had to be there. But folks, can I tell you this? It's so much more than church attendance. I know we can't keep covenant with God, but we can do this. We can come to God and say, God, it's not much, but I'll give you everything I have. After all, you gave me everything you have. And can I tell you this? We've gotten the far, far better end of the deal. Now look with me, if you will, in the book of Matthew, chapter number 26. Matthew chapter 26. In fact, hold your place in Matthew 26. I just want to go, uh, let's go first to 1 Corinthians, and then we'll go to Matthew 26, and we'll have our observation of the Lord's Supper tonight. Matthew 
In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, if you will, Paul is teaching here, and there were some errors and problems that were taking place uh, in the church in Corinth. And Paul said in uh, verse number 20, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. And the church at Corinth had gotten to a place where they were making this a, a festivity, a, like a church fellowship, if you will. It became very uh, non-reflective. Certainly was not a remembrance of the covenant, but it became about the meal and about the eating and the drinking. He says in verse number twenty-three, "For I have received of the Lord that which I also uh, that which I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me." The moment that he said that to his disciples, his disciples began to have a glimmer of understanding of what was taking place. And after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this new covenant that he has made, that Hebrews so clearly talks about. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the blood, body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Paul was giving some instruction here and expressing what the Lord was teaching as he had this time with the disciples in the upper room. He says, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you do show... His death, it's to be done in the prospect and the idea of remembering this testament that was in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says in verse 28, and I want us to look at this for a moment. He talks about the danger of eating and drinking unworthily. And in verse 28 he says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. I was years ago in my dad's church. And he shared a story one time with our church. He said there was a a fellow in the church one evening that had come back after we had observed the Lord's Supper. And as he shook hands on the way out, he leaned over and kind of in a low voice told my dad, he said, I abstained from taking of the Lord's Supper because I didn't want to partake unworthily. He said, I've got some sin in my life and felt like I couldn't partake of the Lord's Supper worthily. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Paul is not teaching exclusion from. 
Paul is teaching, get it right. This, this is a great time for reflection. To look into our hearts and say, Lord, am I, is my life worthy? Is, is there anything I need to get right with you? Because the truth of the matter is none of us are ever going to be fully worthy, aren't we? But it's a time for us to come and to look into our own hearts. And look at what it says here. And I like this because there are some churches that will exclude people out of their church from partaking of the Lord's Supper because of what they have going on in their life. And that's not taught here either. The Bible says in verse number 28, Let a man examine, what's the next word here? Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. It's a time for introspection as we remember what God has done for us. It causes us to come to a place that if there are things not right between us and Him, we get them right. It's a time that we come together and while we rejoice and reflect and have a great time around the Lord's table and how special it is to our hearts it's a time for us to also say, Lord, is there something I need to get right with you? And having gotten it right, then we come to the Lord's table and we partake. Now look with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 26. Verse number 17, now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, now the first, the first day of the week of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? <clears throat> and he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto, him, unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I would, should die with thee, 
yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. We hear the rest of the story as they go into Gethsemane and the Lord is betrayed. He stands before Pilate and is beaten. Given a choice, the people choose Barabbas. And our Lord is sent to Calvary, innocent. And Peter, as impetuous as he was, said, Lord, I will never deny you. But we don't focus on this very often. So did all the other disciples. They said, even to the point of death. Can I ask you tonight, are we that sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ? We've not had to live a persecuted life. And we have not had to live a life of martyrdom. We've had really a life of ease when it's come to our Christian life here in the United States. I'd like to think that if the time came that God called on me to take a stand to the point of death, that I would be faithful to death. I think most of us would like to think that about ourselves. But I heard somebody say one time, and it struck me, that if I am not willing to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, I will never be willing to die for Him. God has given us everything. We're getting ready to, to do something that for 2,000 years people have been doing to remember the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that was made on our behalf because God in His infinite wisdom knew that there was no way you and I could ever keep covenant with Him. So He let His Son do it for us. It ought to rejoice our hearts. It ought to bring conviction to our hearts. It brings so much a flood of emotions it's hard to explain, isn't it? With great joy and yet great sorrow and our failures. What a wonderful thing this time is. And how it ought to be something that causes us to reflect with joy on what God has done. And with repentance on things that we know are not right between us and Him. I'm going to ask if the deacons would come at this time and go ahead and prepare for the Lord's Supper. If you're here tonight, you've been scripturally saved and baptized, we would invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. And we look forward to having you do that as well.